Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. When the Bavarian naturalist Moritz Wagner traveled through the Caucasus in 1849, he encountered there in Georgia thousands of Germans, some of them living in what he described as Ganz Deutsche, Deutsche Bauart, a German-designed village. They or their parents had emigrated there after the Napoleonic Wars and recreated what they knew best. What Wagner found in the Caucasus was also encountered by travelers, including himself, in Argentina, Chile, Brazil, and the triangular area between Cincinnati, St. Louis, and St. Paul, and in places considerably closer to Wagner's native Bavaria. They are communities of people who were, as my guest Glenn Penny describes them, German and something else. Their stories are the heart of Penny's new book, German History Unbound, from 1750 to the present. H. Glenn Penny is Professor of History and Henry J. Brubin, Endowed Chair in German History at the University of California, Los Angeles. His most recent publications include In Humboldt's Shadow, A Tragic History of German Ethnology, and he is currently working on a book entitled Belonging to the Southern German Borderlands Since 1800. Glenn Penny, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks very much. So what is German history when it's bound? I guess the way I think of it is when I went to graduate school, when I went to college, this was a long time ago, back in the 1980s, um, the history we learned was the history of the German nation state. And mostly it was the story of the rise and fall of whoever was ruling. First you had kings, you had emperors, you had princes, you had dynasties. Um, Eventually you had Prussia rising up and eventually you had Bismarck and Prussia getting together in the middle of the 19th century and creating the German nation state. And then the story of how that state came and went through different regimes and major conflicts, major ruptures. Uh, As that story was told, you also occasionally had people intervene and say, what we need is to add in more stories about everyday people, some social history. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, we need to add in gender and women because actually masculinity is coded in many ways. It can be found in different areas. Women were involved in all these different things we write about but have been left out. Um, And I could go on and on and on with the other things that were added to the general narrative. But the way in which it was narrated was always around within the framework of a periodization, a breaking up into different chapters that were framed by radical events, the destructions of nations, the Napoleonic Wars, economic crises, all of which were turning around nation states. So it became very common, and as I actually took history classes when I was in college, do people talk about the Germans versus the French versus the British versus the Swedes, And these were unitary categories in which whatever the nation state did was regarded as an act of the people living within it. We've come a long way since then. Most history isn't written that way anymore. Um, There's more of an understanding that there are many different people living within countries, uh, that a lot of the people who lived within the German nation state after it was created in the 1870s actually didn't even speak German. And there were great works on regional history with the same was true with France. You had the famous hexagon in which peasants were turned into Frenchmen, as Eugene Weber once said. But Caroline Ford taught us that, yeah, no, not really. 
lot of the peasants kept speaking dialects, and that was true of many other European countries and remained true for a long time afterwards. So Mm -hmm. the bounded history is the history bounded by the political borders you see on the maps when you open up a textbook or most any history book that shows you that Germany is here until the borders change after a war or a negotiation or conflict, and then it's there. But it is a thing. It's a unitary thing that we can trace over time. So when we start to unbind the German nation or Germany, we also, it becomes very vertiginous because as you're just suggesting, we also end up unbinding German and what it means to be German. And this gets, is German then a noun or is it an adjective? Um, and, and and, And just a quick search of Professor Wikipedia's work will suggest the vertiginousness of this. Um, you highlight, we'll get to this in a little bit, a, a magnificent Catholic church up near Dubuque, uh, now I, uh, which I can't find in my notes, but not that far away, uh, near Highway 61 from Davenport to Dubuque, there's a, a Luxembourg village. And it's a Luxembourg, I repeat that, a Luxembourgish village. But its patron saint is has a German name. It's Sant Donatus of it's it's from the border of Germany or Holland or are they German? Are they Luxembourger? Who you know? It, what who what do they think of themselves? It's not, but it's not just these border people. It's lots of other people. Are they German? Are they a noun? Are they Germanish? Are they adjectival? These are good questions. Um, again, another one of the big movements in uh, especially in the, in the American Academy and in, in cultural history was to recognize. This was also going on in the 90s and continued until today, that people have multiple subject positions, which sometimes it's easier to think of it as multiple identities, right? You are many different things. I'm a white guy. I'm a guy. I'm straight. I'm married. I'm a father. I'm a professor. I'm a rock climber. I could go down the whole list. And I think I'm more of one of these things than the others, depending on the context in which I'm standing, right, in that particular moment. Um, so if I'm in a room full of women, I'm feeling very much like a man, um, <laughs> switch it around and I might feel like something else. Uh, so more people in cultural studies and then later cultural history started to interrogate what this meant uh, when we started writing these histories, which were about these unitary categories where everyone is just a German. And it turns out that most people, even within the German nation state after it was created, thought of themselves as not just Germans, but Germans plus other things. Um, been some really, I think, pretty good studies on this. Jan Plamper, who's a, a German but is also tied to Russians, um, wrote a cool book called The New We, uh, which is, I think has just come out with Cambridge, but it was originally with Fisher in French, which was also about this notion, this idea that when people start wondering about, well, can we integrate all these new outsiders into the new Germany in the 21st century, he reminded everyone that, yeah, because People from all over have been integrated into the old Germany for centuries. Um, so it's actually a process that's been yeah, pretty effective. Of course, it's had problems, but there have been a tremendous amount of successes. Uh, and, and the biggest problem is, as he pointed out, that when we narrate these histories of places like Germany, we tend to leave out those successes and kind of forget that the integration was pretty widespread and fairly successful in a lot of cases. Um, and that's not just limited to the German nation state, but there's a huge amount of work that's been done in the last couple of decades on Austria or Austria-Hungary or the Habsburg Empire, but Switzerland as well, 
where these German-speaking communities were also filled with people who you would also call Italian or other things. So, in fact, there's some really great work to be done on, you know, the ways in which a German history that leaves out Austria and Switzerland is it's not really telling a complete story. And Jim Sheehan made this argument a long time ago, and Dieter Langevisha made this argument, and Tübingen as well. Um, but it didn't really catch on um, until more recently. Well, now, I mean, because that has stri- that has kind of then sort of Anschluss resonance. You know, it's it's like, it, 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 we'll, we'll get to this at the end, but when you do that, which I think is is intellectually, you know, coherent, it, mm-hmm. it now sounds, it now feels, since 1938, it feels icky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess you wanted to save the icky part to the end, but I think what Langevisha would say is that if you really wanted to understand what was going on, there are a lot of affinities that had nothing to do with national socialism that explain Austrians' behavior when the Anschluss took place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you want to I, really understand the historical moment and people's motivations, you have to look at the longer history. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to start skipping around as, as you say things. I'm going to skip around in, in, my, in my notes and in the book. Mm-hmm. But you, you describe it, it, when people are coming over into the 18th century to the 13 co- British colonies or when mm-hmm. or at the same time when they're going to the Volga or when they're going to we could lots of other places to Hungary at the time. The Germans are going everywhere as in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. Um, they're not saying to themselves, I'm a German, but they're not also they're not saying I'm a Saxon necessarily, or I'm a Thuringian, or I'm a I'm a Schwabian. I mean they might. Uh, you point out the importance of these sort of mental geographies that they have. They, they, they're from maybe the Schwarz, they're from the Black Forest. You know, I was thinking this in relation to my own family's history. My, my mother's family came from the island of Regan. Um, and who the hell were they in terms of nation states? By, you know, for 300 years, they've been governed by at least four or five different polities. Um, and so they were really, in the, in the story of the family, they're from that island. You know, they're from that sort of mental geography, that space. Right. And that's that's a really good point. Um, I'm going to stop referring to the 90s soon. But uh, one of the big <laughs> innovations, I think, that started to um, unbind German history was the really great work by Celia Applegate, Alain Confino, and a number of other people on regional history within Germany, um, demonstrating that, you know, people from the Rhineland-Pfalz, this is what Applegate wrote about, which is a part of Germany that was completely a political line that was drawn. There's no geographical um, you know, determining factor for this area coming about. Uh, thought of themselves first and foremost as from that space. Mm-hmm. And that when they thought of being German, they thought of it through that prism. And Confino made a similar argument about Württemberg and other people made other arguments about other areas. Um, the problem I have with that, and, and you, you made a very good point with the island, is that a lot of people's regions are not defined by political boundaries. They can be a region like the Elbsandsteinsgebirge. They can be a region like the Bodensee or Lake Constance. They can be a region like the Rhineland, which, as you said, has had many different kinds of sovereigns. Um, and this is characteristic. If you look at a map of the Holy Roman Empire and then put it on a digital setting and pull the toggle at the bottom and watch it shift and change over time, you can see that a lot of towns have multiple sovereigns simultaneously, not just so shifting and changing over time. It's like looking at a very bad dermatological condition. Yeah. And, and so the point, of course, is that people then, they, their sense of belonging, they recognize sovereigns, they have fealty to them, they pay their taxes, 
but that's not who they are. So the groups in, who go to the caucuses, for example, that you, you, you mentioned at the beginning that Mots Wagner stumbles into, they're from what we today would call Baden-Württemberg, which didn't exist as a state at that time. It was Baden and Württemberg and actually broken down into a lot of other territories. And when they left, it was after the uh, Napoleonic Wars and had a lot to do both with taxes and the fact that they tended to be pretty conservative pietists and they wanted to go to someplace where people would leave them alone. And they didn't really think about a Germany that they were leaving. They spoke German and in Russia they were thought of as Germans, but they thought of themselves as people with a particular religious background from a very localized part of the world who had always known that people who didn't like where they were could leave because a lot of people had been leaving from that area for centuries. Yeah. Do we have any numbers on when, when did German, so, so, so reading the book, it makes me believe that the most prevailing fact of German history, and I'm making air quotes now because I don't know what else to do. Um, is emigration. Um, do we have numbers? How far back does this go? I mean, it goes back to the Middle Ages. And, and I guess you're working on that now and thinking of and thinking of the sort of the near near immigrants, as it were. We're going to talk about far immigrants for the most part in this in this uh, conversation. But how far back does it go? And is there any way of having a census or a, a sort of a even a demographic guess about how big this is? Yeah, so um, the only way... There's, there, I mean, there, you've got a couple of questions there. Yeah. Um, the biggest point, I think, is that historians who work on the early modern period more recently have demonstrated that there was a lot more mobility among both men and women, single and married, within Central Europe, German-speaking Europe, than we ever imagined during that period. Um, they can track some of it because of church records, right, births and deaths and marriages, um, and they can track some of it because these people were in professional organizations, I guess, for lack of better terms. So they might be the pastors and priests being sent places. They might be the journeymen going out to get experience. They might be the migrant laborers. There's a group of children that were referred to as the Schwabenkinder who came from Austria, especially for Alberg, but also Switzerland from rural areas who would travel into Southern Germany in Baden-Württemberg and Bavaria and work during the warm months and then take that money back to their families. So there's lots of people moving around. Um, but really reliable figures are hard to come by because there's just, you know, there are no censuses. There is no data. And even once we get those, there's people who've tried to study the overseas migration. People like Walter Kumpholfner and others have demonstrated they become highly problematic because unless you can get all of the local records, which are not necessarily extant, uh, it's very difficult to figure out who left and who came back. Um, and if you even can do that, it's very difficult to figure out the why of it. Uh, and part of the reason, for example, you can't just go to, say, the port cities of Hamburg and Bremen is not everyone left from Hamburg and Bremen. You know, some would go down to Marseille. They would, they would go to wherever the closest port was or wherever they might have a connection. Um, so, uh, the, and then the, in terms of the people who arrive in countries they go to, even if they have great census, well, they might not register them all. So you can look at the census for the United States. You mentioned Davenport and Iowa, and it may be that your relatives who arrived, well, were not written down as German at all, but maybe as Prussian or something else. 
Um, so you have to then come up with a whole lot of different keywords to try and find them all. Um, and then we also find that, yes, believe it or not, those American records also were highly problematic. Uh, and then there's a compilation of records in Chile, for example, people who arrive and they're German when they arrive after they become Chilean citizens are no longer marked as German anymore. So with each sense, recensus, you lose the past ones who've um, become citizens. <laughs> uh, so, so the data is hard. But what we do know and is, I think, very well documented is that we have waves of out-migration. The mm-hmm. early waves head mostly to the east and the southeast. Um, you mentioned Hungary. There's very old German communities in the Baltic states. There are, well, there are old communities all over Eastern and Central Europe and Russia, but bigger numbers leave when Catherine the Great starts to invite people. And she, she like many people, want hardworking German farmers. People who are educated. People are going up to build economies. And this is basically something that all of these Central and Eastern European rulers do, especially after, for example, conflict with the Turks. And not just Central and Eastern European rulers. When I read, you know, when I read your book, when I read other about the Volga Germans of Catherine the Great, right. it's, it's always so evocative of the way Virginia governors for mm-hmm. a century, uh, Virginia entrepreneurs, William Byrd II, tried to import Germans because Virginia is a great place if only we could have a better class of person, if we only could have some industrious Germans around. So the, the attempts to bring Germans to the American South, uh, the colonial South, to Georgia, the from Palatines, um, Switzers of some mm-hmm. kind, to Virginia. You know, eventually the backcountry is settled by Pennsylvania Germans, not by intention, but the intentions, it, it, everywhere there's em, edge of empire in the 18th century, there seems to be a desire from local authorities or imperial authorities to bring over more Germans. It's, it's true, and this continues in the 19th century. So the entire Midwest, most of these states like Wisconsin and Iowa, they produce what are essentially advertisements that they write up in multiple languages, always German, and they have advertisers, we call them lobbyists today, who go to Europe and go to these places and say, yes, we've got great land either to give away or for sale um, and come on over. And sometimes there's colonization organizations. Um, we were talking just a minute ago before we started the tape about the Turner, the gymnastics mm. associations. Um, and just last week I was in Ulm. Well, there's a big group from Ulm that are gym- part of these gymnastics associations who also tend to be political liberals mm-hmm. who move to Ohio in mass. And then once they get there, they have a, a run-in with the know-nothings. who are basically anti-immigrant group in the United States. So they move out to New Ulm, Minnesota and found a place just for Turners, where initially they say, we want no lawyers, we want no churches, <laughs> and we're not going to have any money. And we're going to take this and we're going to equitably redistribute all the land and everybody gets huh. a parcel to live on, a parcel to farm, and a parcel of a forest, basically, which works out so that's, pretty that's, well at first. That's a man of colonies. That's a man of colonies without the sort of Lutheran pietist charismatic Verkzeug stuff. That's that's but amazing. That's the church part, yeah. And they, they also yeah, didn't yeah. own everything in common. They split it all up evenly, okay. and then after a while, they let in the lawyers, they let in the churches, and they let in the money. <laughs> um, but the you know the Turner Hall remained a, a center point of uh, congregation. So we know that in the 19th century, well, we have records, pretty good records for the 17th and 18th century too, but in the 19th century, there's quite literally millions of German speakers who arrive in the United States. And 
you know, it just depends on where you want to start your 19th century and end it, how many millions. Mm-hmm. But anywhere between five and six is a, a reasonable number. So, so you write, German diversity was indeed one of the chief imports that accompanied mass German immigration to the United States. And it remains one of the challenges for historians who might seek to track the history of the Germans across space and time since that putatively unitary category was in flux. Now, we just, in a way, just touched on this. We just talked about pietists moving into the Caucasus. And then we have these sort of ardent liberal uh, turners who don't want any churches at all who are moving to Ohio and then Wisconsin. Uh, They're cheek by jowl with a manna colonists who follow a charismatic prophetess, uh, even though they're sort of vaguely Lutheran pietists. And then people like my ancestors who are determined Lutheran semi-pietists who don't like the unified state church. Uh, and also want better economic opportunity. So we've got already got a diversity of condition and of Germanness, you know, that's coming over to the United States that can't be just bundled up into one single cup. That's right. And if you went on, you could add all the Mennonites, for example, that are just sure. below Iowa City. And um, you know, there's also the the German speakers who are also Jewish. You create the first synagogues in Iowa, and we could go down and down the list. Or we could, um, or the German and the German-speaking synagogues of like Savannah and Montgomery, mm-hmm. Alabama, and in Charleston, mm-hmm. South Carolina. But we also then we've got eventually we've got the Mennonites uh, in in Russia who are there for a hundred hundred years before they decide to emigrate to the United States. You know, are they German? Are they Russian? Who, who knows? Well, they're basically both, uh, and yeah. also neither. Also, neither, right? Because neither. They're, <laughs> right. They're, they're Germanists derives from certain cultural and linguistic characteristics, um, and you you could also you know argue that they share with a lot of other German speakers this um, propensity to uh, to improve land that they settle um, and make it more productive, uh, and in that sense, they're welcomed along with the other Germans by Catherine the Great. Um, but they only want to be Russian as long as it serves them. And when the uh, privileges, I guess you would call it, that the Russian state granted them initially started to be rescinded by a succession of czars. And then when it got really bad after the Russian Revolution, the First World War and the Russian Revolution, and then Stalinism, and basically all that went out, the Mennonites left in droves if they could get out. Um, but yeah, they were basically, you know, protesting to leave and Petersburg and Moscow. They were fleeing down through Iran. Um, they were heading to east uh, towards China and, uh, and pretty much any way they could to get out. And then they were going to Canada or, or Kansas or, or down mm-hmm. to Paraguay. And they were helped on the one hand by German organizations, some of which were tied to the German nation state, but also specifically transnational or international Mennonite organizations, which are centered in the United States and very strong in Canada. Um, so they all aided with resettlement projects. So they were, you know, yes, they could speak Russian, they could speak German, they had affiliations to those, those cultures, but at this, you know, they weren't tied to either of those nation states. They were very much trying to find a place where they could just be themselves. Um, and even the Mennonites, which if, you know, I, I won't go into a lecture about the history of religion, but, um, there's not one single Mennonite religion. There's a great variety of different congregations that have different takes on what they believe, and they don't necessarily all get along. So John Eicher wrote a very good book about this. Um, he was one of my students at the University of Iowa, and um, 
he wrote about some of the German Russian Mennonites who end up in Paraguay and live next to each other. One group of which thought national socialism sounded okay and might be a ticket back to Central Europe, and the other of which rejected it outright and thought it was outrageous to even consider that. So among the Mennonites, you can have pretty diverse political positions. But without even going to the Mennonites and just staying, as you, you know, I like the I, I like talking about the Midwest uh, because you have that connection there. Uh, we want to remember that the the Catholics and the various forms of Protestants also didn't hang out. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the interesting thing about those Germans who go to Russia and end up in places like Argentina. In a lot of cases, they travel from places like what is today Baden-Württemberg. They settle in somewhere in Russia near each other, but they create their Catholic and their Lutheran churches. They have their own schools. They live next to each other. They inter interact with each other, but they never intermarry. And when they flee, sometimes they flee together. They end up in Argentina together. They settle again with communities next to each other where they again put up their churches and their schools, but they don't intermarry. There was even an article in the New York Times, I think it was in the early 2000s, um, about Carol, Iowa, which was something called something along the lines of um, all white, incredibly diverse and something else. Uh, but the point being that the religious distinctions in the community, even into the 20th century, were so strong that, you know, it divided the Germans, but Catholicism was also divided by ethnicity. So when the Catholic Church there sent into the diocese an Irish preach, a priest, the Germans all left and founded a second Catholic Church, right? So that it was <laughs> ethnic and religiously consistent. Um, so neither the Irish Catholics were welcome, nor were the Lutheran Germans. So that's one way. I mean, religion is something we always forget for some reason in the 21st century. But if you go to Iowa, you know, you can see that Davenport is overwhelmingly um, overwhelmingly settled by people who come from Schleswig-Holstein during the 1848 revolutions. They're highly educated. There's lots of German language schools. There are a lot of the businesses done in German. Um, it's very progressive, forward-thinking, not quite like New Ulm, completely doing away with churches, but there are, there are a lot of people who want um, secular organizations running things you go up the river um to where all the catholics are you go down the river to burling iowa that's where all the schwabians are um and this makes sense because as walter kampofner um taught us a long time ago the way chain migration works from central europe to the united states is that some people come over they do well they write home and then people from their home come over so that you have entire communities and various little pinpoints on the American map that come from various little pinpoints on the European map. So they import the diversity. And the diversity, I think, for Americans is really hard to understand. But just sitting in, I'm in Tübingen today, in Baden-Württemberg, it's technically in Württemberg, because people who are Baden from Baden and the Württemberger, they don't necessarily get along. They were pressed together after the Second World War into a state. But even within those two categories, there's a great diversity of dialect and position. You really know when you go from one village to the next, if you've left a, a, a pietist village and you hit a Catholic one because all the iconography shifts and changes. And if you're good with your ear, you can hear the shifting dialects as well. And everybody knows this. There's code switching mm -hmm. constantly. Everyone identifies where you're from the minute you open your mouth. 
So that vast diversity is also ubiquitous in Latin America and North America and wherever else the Germans go. Yeah, I, I, this is a, I open up more or less randomly in the digital <laughs> version of this to a, a great story um, uh, where you actually learn something from undergraduates, which professors believe is impossible. But it was very strange because you were reading a book by a former, you, they were reading, you were having them read a book by a former professor of mine, Mac Walker. And, oh. and then, and it was about, and then you ended up finding out about sort of the ways in which Iowa villages or towns sort of mirror German villages, which, which it blends perfectly with what you just said. Could you expound on that? Yeah. I mean, for, I mean, to tell everyone listening what, what the story was about, essentially they had read Mac Walker's German hometowns, which was a classic book about the variety of little towns in Germany that were all little hometowns and similar in that sense, but also spread around and how they explained a lot of the politics and the social dynamics of the history and the purity I was studying. And, and so I had assigned pieces of this book to the students to read, and I was trying to walk them through what I thought were the big important parts. And one of the students raised her hand and said, it sounds just like where I grew up. And then a bunch of others chimed in and, and said, me too, me too. And then they started to explain things like, you know, we know who the Catholics are. We know who the Lutherans are in our high school. Um, we know which church they go to. And if you go to the Lutheran church, all of the gravestones are in German. And they have all the same family names. And what shifts over time in the rows, as you look from the earliest ones to the most recent ones, the names are the same, but the the iconography on the on the stones changes slightly. They move from the old German handwriting, which we would now call Fraktur, because the way mm-hmm. it was printed on the stones, which you would recognize, kind of a Gothic script, um, to the normal script that you're used to with the Latin letters, but still with lots of quotes from German authors and old German sayings. And, and this persists right into the 30s and the 40s before it starts to blend with the non-Germans. And everyone knows who goes to those um, to those different churches and belongs to those subgroups within the community. And everybody also knows who the Bohemians are um, because there's lots of Czechs in the area mm-hmm. and they're not Germans. And the thing is, the kids or the students by this point, but there's still kids in high school, you know, they still think of themselves, oh, that's a Bohemian family. Nobody speaks Czech in that family and nobody speaks German in the German families, but they all have the old letters, the diaries, the photo albums, the connections, and they, on their mental maps, can see, still see the distinctions, which are marked sometimes also until we got highly industrialized agriculture in the way the, the, the landscapes were laid out, mm-hmm. how the houses were created, what the farms looked like, the way the barns were built, the way they organized space, how they married children um, across neighborhoods and built properties. If you look at the plat maps, for example, in the... Um, state historical societies, you can see very clear distinctions mapping out how German families occupied the Midwest. And there's, there was some really great work done on this um, by demographers in the 50s and 60s. And as you made clear, we could find the same thing in the Caucasus based on Moritz Wagner's observations. We could find the same thing in Paraguay. We can find the same thing in Argentina. We can find the same thing in Curitiba province of Brazil. We could keep, keep on going. We see the same sort of the same sort of this, these effects. Right. Right. And then what we start to notice is that, or what I started to notice, let me put it this way. What I started to notice is that the, the parameters that matter are sometimes 
locations. So isolated agricultural communities oftentimes retain um, very consistent characteristics from the place they came from so that in lots of parts of Brazil, you find two dominant, uh, I guess you could say dialects of German, either Hunsruka or Poman, Pomeranian. Mm. Pomeranians were so widespread that Poma became sort of a, a short shrift for a German anywhere in Brazil, even in places where they weren't. So you still find, even today, dialects of German alongside High German alongside Portuguese. Yeah. And those are also markers as well. And that's, more, that's very interesting. That's in my in my family history too. So my my grandfather, born in the eighteen nineties, event was spoke Pullman. Um, that was their dialect growing up. Uh, but then in seminary, learned you know very good Hochdeutsch, mm-hmm. uh, and ended up being chaplain at post chaplain at Fort Sill and chaplain to the uh, German POWs to the Afrika Corps basically. And who yeah. all thought that, you know, he was just an educated American and had no idea that he, by that time, knew at least one or maybe more dialects and could mm-hmm. sort of code switch back and forth. Yeah. And those, or, you know, there's organizations that are still focused on exactly those dialects in places like Wisconsin today, where people, right. you know, they still get together and have meetings. But what we find is in, uh, you know, in, in cities, there tends to be more blending and mixing and the dialects, um, remain common in households, but high German takes over largely because of the way the schools are organized, mm-hmm. mostly yeah. German language schools. And then the teachers are teaching in high German. So the same thing happens, for example, in Buenos Aires and these schools that happens in central Europe and German speaking central Europe and Milwaukee. more teachers <laughs> speaking high German eliminates dialect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is, um, one of the really interesting things you bring out is the way that Germany in the 19th century, as this, as it's it, German, uh, people in Germany, in the new Germany or in the developing Germany, are in constant contact with emigrants for generations, members of the family who are abroad. This is also a highly literate society. Uh, the first Western novel is probably written in German. Um, and they're fast. And Moritz Wagner is right, who, who we mentioned. Many people like him are traveling around the world botanizing and doing what and ethnologizing, and their accounts are read. So there's this, as you describe it, a sort of a, a network of, of multiple of, uh, uh, effects of immigration networks, of literary, textual, visual evidence that's and, and, and production that's coming that's coming to Germany and that's being produced in Germany. And then I guess flowing back out to these communities around the world. And at the same time, there are letters. There are four million letters sent from the USA. I don't know how this stat is derived, but four million letters sent from the USA to Germany each year. Uh, this is and I imagine that like amounts are coming from Argentina and Brazil and maybe the Volga. Uh, this is astonishing. Right. The, so the statistics, I think, are pretty good because the coast post office keeps pretty good <laughs> records. Yeah. Um, and this is, again, I keep mentioning Walter Kompofner because he is the immigration historian who worked with a number of other very good historians um, from the 70s through, well, he's still working today. Uh, there's also um, collections of letters. Some of them used to be in Bochum. They've now moved, but uh, the real banks of letters that people continue to work on. In fact, the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C. has made a big effort to create 
to collect even more. When we did a project at the University of Iowa called German Iowa in the Global Midwest about five, maybe it's even seven, eight years ago, we also found people who had you know tons of letters in their and their um, and their attics and their basements from Granny, and then it turns out from people that Granny's Granny knew, um, mm-hmm. and so that the the letters are pretty astounding, and it's it's very safe to say then that pretty much everyone in German speaking Central Europe knew somebody who was in the Americas. Uh, by the middle of the 19th century, certainly by the end of the 19th century. And then the thing that really changes that matters a lot, and the statistic you gave was towards the end, is that sending mail, like sending people, just becomes easier and cheaper each mm-hmm. decade through the 19th century. So that by the time you get to the end, we and we have very good records of this, you have industrial labor in German-speaking Europe that is pretty highly skilled and able to simply pull out the newspapers and figure out who's hiring where and hop a boat to New York City to go work in Massachusetts where they'll get better paid than they would have been paid in industrializing Saxony. Um, And it's no big deal because they can just go there and work for a while and come back if they want. Now, this stops after the First World War for all kinds of reasons. But up to that point, it became increasingly common for the kinds of labor migrations I was talking about from the 18th century, which moved people back and forth from Vorarlberg to Switzerland to southern Germany, that just became global. So yeah, you could go to New York, you could go to Argentina, you could go to Australia, you could get a job, you could stay for a while, you could stay forever, you could return. These were all completely viable options that everyone knew about. And a lot of it, as you just said, is because of literacy rates. Now, that does have to do with nation states. Um, Hmm. And it happens that both the Prussian state and the Austrian state in the age of the Habsburg Empire um, were recognized that their human capital was of great value and that if you've required education, you actually would increase the productivity um, of the people that were part of your your realm. And so they mandated education in German-speaking Central Europe. Um, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't complete uh, immediately. But by the time we get to the second half of the 19th century, you have 90% literacy rates in most German-speaking parts of Europe, whereas you, these people arrive in places like Latin America and Chile, where it's just the opposite, You know, where the vast majority of people are illiterate. And not just the native Chileans who you know are either from Spanish-speaking Europeans who came generations earlier um, or indigenous groups, but also the other Europeans. So, for example, in a place like Argentina, the vast majority of the Italians who far outnumber the Germans are illiterate. So, and those those who want to become literate are more interested in learning Spanish than Italian because Italian is based on the Tuscan dialect, right? And if you're Sicilian, mm-hmm. you don't speak that. So it doesn't really make sense to learn that when you can learn Spanish, which has much more viability in Spanish-speaking Central uh, Latin America. So what we find then is that even the agricultural labor and the industrial labor that comes over from German-speaking Europe immediately has one leg up on any kind of economic competition from other places in the world because they can read the newspapers, they can read the ads, they can write letters, they can and they can also tap into those germanophone networks that are based on that literacy. 
And that could be finance, that could be trade, that could be travel, it could be industry, it could be all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. You have a chapter called Recasting the Emigrant Nation. Uh, briefly, what do you mean by that? So this is a little play on words. Uh, you know, and If you don't see it written down, immigrant in, in English sounds the same when it's written with an E or written with an I, <laughs> right? Um, so in this case, I'm talking about the big E. Uh, and that means out-migration. Yeah. And the thing about the out-migration, um, there's actually a very good book, which I believe has the title Immigrant Nation about Italy, uh, which is all about the awareness that the Italian government gains, that they have Italians spread all over the world. And if they can tap into those Italians and do something with them, that can be profitable for the Italian nation state. And that's the thing about Germany as well, is that as the you have German speakers from what becomes the German nation state spread all over before you get to the 1870s. The German nation state gets created in the 1870s and they create citizenship laws or they extend citizenship laws. They redevelop citizenship laws that like other states at that time, basically think or say that, you know, if you're from here and you leave and you don't really stay in contact with us for 10 years or more, you just stop being a citizen. We don't really need you anymore. And Otto von Bismarck, who's well known as sort of the um, the catalyst or the fashioner of the German nation state, uh, has very little interest in Germans elsewhere. So German speakers in the Austrian Empire, he doesn't care. Those are Austrians hmm. for him. And he's not the least bit interested in supporting them or connecting with them when we have the division into Austro-Hungary. Hungarians want to mandate Hungarian in the school and close German schools. He's like, we don't mess with that because... That would interfere with our big politics. Um, So there's not much interest in these immigrants abroad. But what happens is those who live abroad build up these networks of trade and finance and advantage, particularly across the Atlantic sphere, North and, and South and Central America. They build up these large, powerful communities, and they recognize that actually working together has a lot of virtues. And then they lobby within the German nation state that maybe it makes a lot of sense to tie the German nation state to these communities. It's actually coming from outside. And then they convince the people within the German nation state to, and this is the German foreign office initially, and then all the way up into the government, that maybe it would make sense to change those, those citizenship laws, to make it possible for all those Germans abroad to still be connected back onto the nation state so that they can use them to help open up markets because of all those German speakers in the world who might want German products or give them ties to raw materials. So all the German agriculturalists in southern Chile or in Argentina can be sending meat or wood or anything else that uh, the German nation state might need. And it needs a lot of raw materials um, at this time back to Germany. So you can build these German connections so you can recast it as something that's politically, economically, global, uh, and purposefully in a way that would benefit the German nation state. But the key point to this is, you know, the, the German nation state doesn't devise this itself. It's actually the Germans abroad who do most of the pushing and pulling. And then the nation state goes, oh, yeah, this makes sense. And but, one of the great examples is the schools, uh-huh. uh, German language schools that are all over the place, are initially founded individually by the communities, later supported by the government. Very little money is is put into those schools in the first 30 years of Imperial Germany's existence from 1870 to 1900. 
approximately. Um, but in the decade before the First World War, it goes into millions and millions of German marks because they start to realize, oh, not only can we draw in those German communities, we can draw in the people who send their kids to the German schools as well. And this is smart money. This is a smart investment. Okay. So but one the question that this prompts, also from the, both the conversation and the book, is these people abroad – are they doing this? Are they they're, they're sort of they're pushing this over to what's become the center, and they're the periphery. And I think that we should establish that there, there in a way there has been no center until you know it, it's difficult to talk about a center and periphery. Uh, but now there's a now there's this imperial center, but it's these people, these people who've been in Argentina for a hundred years uh, or fifty years, who are sort of who are initiating this policy, is that because they now think of themselves as German in a way that their parents or grandparents did not? Are they are they creating an idea of imperial Germany that the actual people in Berlin haven't glommed onto? Or do they have an idea of Kulturgemeinschaft, of some sort of, of some sort of cultural community that spans the globe? Yeah, I think that um, and it, it's one of the sort of controversial points in the book is the notion that Kulturgemeinschaft yes. is something we can take seriously. This notion that there's a general German culture that you can belong to um, without it necessarily being tied to the nation state, that you can see an overarching unity in all this diversity and multiplicity that we just talked about. And one of the other arguments of the book is that the history, the German history that goes across these centuries, these let's say the last three centuries, is also polycentric from the get-go, because you just mentioned a second ago that a center starts to emerge, and that's true. There's been you know, really great work that's shown that when Imperial Germany was created in 1871, it took decades really for it to be pulled together completely. David Blackburn wrote about this a long time ago, and other people have continued to develop this point um, very effectively. But by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, the German nation state is quite powerful economically. It's a really important player and a lot of export and import. Um, and it's becoming a political player that matters a lot. So there's been some great, really great histories about, um, you know, the sort of love and hate between the United States as a state and Imperial Germany as a state, where at first Imperial Germany is Germans are good, this is great. And then they get a little bit too strong. And then the Americans start thinking, man, maybe they're a little too militaristic. Maybe they're a little bit too obnoxious. Uh, you know, they start stretching and, and, and uh, flexing, I guess is the term you would say today. Um, and the, the Americans don't like that. The famous Kaiser invasion plan of Long Island and Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia, you know, I guess right. that was just a, a fever dream, but still, you know. But these kinds of the, these things can now be dreamed. This is the point, right? Whereas in the 1860s, there was it's a joke. Um, so, so it's true that this new state now can do things for these Germans who were already abroad that there was no state to do for them earlier on. And as it becomes stronger, it becomes an asset for them as well. And this, you know, this is one of the points that um, I hope doesn't get lost in the book, where I, I try to underscore that. The German Empire outside of Germany, right? Those colonial territories that Imperial Germany takes after after 1884 um, and holds until the First World War, on the one hand, get far too much attention because very few Germans go there, and economically they, you know, 
Guatemala is probably more important economically than most of the German colonies in Africa. Sure. Um, I don't think that's too much of an overstatement. But you have many more Germans in, in Argentina than you do in all of the German colonies combined. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, part of the reason for having a colonial empire has nothing to do with that. It's about prestige. It's about power politics, real politics on a world stage. And in that sense, it matters. And if you can tie into that economic, political, even social capital as a German speaker outside of Europe, that matters as well. So this is the thing. As Imperial Germany becomes stronger, as it has official colonies abroad, as it becomes a world-class player, that can matter in your local negotiations, even if you're just a trader in Potterguay, right? Or somewhere else. So that's that's I think part of the dynamic that we don't want to overlook if we just look at you know statistics of how many Germans lived in the official colonies or how much money they produce. What we have to look at is the total global pattern, which we see that interestingly, you know, some of the companies that work to build the trains in the official German colonies, that mattered, but they were also building trains in Venezuela and Argentina and the Sudan and all sorts of other places as well. So that for them, you know, building something in the official colonies was just a, you know, one small part of their bigger global business. But so it, it but it, it sounds like sort of the worst paranoia of was it William LeCue and Erskine Childers, you know, riddle of the sands and German fifth columnists, although they didn't have the term fifth column at the time. Um, and you know, the Anglophone, uh, the the mania that sweeps across back. Not, not that everything is about the Midwest, but the the mania that sweeps Iowa in 1918. Um, it, so, it sounds like you're saying there's actually like roots. They're they're right to be worried. There's like there is some sort of you know Kulturgemeinschaft that that is that could enlist people into the cause of imperial Germany. Ah, but this is the thing. It works the other way around. The people are busily (laughs) enlisting imperial Germany into their cause. Uh And so the propagandists would say, if you have great um, effective German businesses all over Central America, dominating Guatemala coffee production, and I could just go down the list of many other things that are being dominated by German businesses, that Mm -hmm. this is not the presence of many Germans being effective business people, but a German presence, which is necessarily directed by the Hohenzollern family back in Prussia. Mm -hmm. And the first is true, the second is not. Mm -hmm. But it's not that scary to find out that a lot of the really good capitalists turn out to be German. I mean, that's a little disconcerting because they're better capitalists than you are. But it's great if you can argue that actually this is a foreign presence that we can label as being something scary so that you can then harness your own imperial power, the United States, for example, and its gunboats to maybe eradicate your competition, which incidentally is exactly what happens in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, All of those powerful German operations are eradicated with the help of the U.S. government to the benefit of big companies like you know, fruit companies in the United States. Uh, it always comes back to United Fruit, the most powerful corporation in the history <laughs> of the United States. At least if you read the Nation. Um, so the, uh, the but let's let's so let's talk about Nazis. Um, in a way, they, they the National Socialists share that misapprehension because uh, probably you know fifteen bucks says that they all believe that in the nineteen thirties that all this this Kulturgemeinschaft will be a National Socialist Gemeinschaft. Um, and that these Germans will loyally support the greater German ideal. And it doesn't quite work out that way. That's right. And the distinction is Kulturgemeinschaft and Volksgemeinschaft. Yeah. And the second one is the Nazi idea, 
the first one is not. And the big difference is that the second one, in addition to being racist and everything else we know about it that's terrible, um, would also be centralized and led by the Nazi party and the leader of the Nazi party. Well, it turns out that even Germans in places like Brazil who joined the Nazi party um, organizations that were created in Brazil kind of had their own idea of what that would be like. And when the Nazi officials showed up to tell them, well, how they were supposed to organize things, they told them to be quiet and go back home because they didn't want to be told what to do by Berlin because they weren't actually Germans. They were German Brazilians. Um, and when the, uh, you know, the various cultural propagandists in Nazi Germany would say, well, we're here to help you out because um, the term in German is Auslandsdeutsche, which we could translate as Germans who live abroad. Um, the German Brazilians would say, stop calling us that. We're no more Auslandsdeutsche than Swiss Germans. Swiss Germans are Germans who are Swiss. We are Brazilian Germans, Germans who are Brazilian. And by the way, our government is here. Your government is there. So that was one of the big problems. So you're absolutely right is that the Nazis, on the one hand, believe their own propaganda and also the propaganda that was being um, pressed against German speakers before they came into power and thought, yes, that fifth columns would work. Now, there is very good uh, data that demonstrates that there, there were pro-Nazi sympathies in all these places, that there were people who were organizing and working in favor of the National Socialists. But what the data ultimately proves is there weren't very many and it wasn't very strong. And the vast majority of people, particularly in Latin America, had very little interest in, in working with national socialists or supporting the cause. And there were many reasons for that. Some were just complete breaks in ideology. Others were, the, to go back to my example of Guatemala, was a realization that if you were to support a national socialist political agenda in the state of Guatemala, the state of Guatemala might not like that because that's a foreign political agenda. And having a party organized to support the political agenda of another state in their state doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so when some groups of Germans tried to do that in Guatemala, they shut it down pretty quickly. Um, so politically, economically, it made absolutely no sense to do this. Now, the big difference is then with a place like Latin America and Central Europe is that you don't have Nazi armies moving into those states and gaining control or putting direct political pressure on those states um, to do anything. The, the monopoly on violence is held completely by the Latin American states. Whereas when German tanks roll into Czechoslovakia, um, they have a lot of control over how you know the Germans who live there are going to interact with them. And that's true even in um, the states that they don't directly take control over but start to uh, align with, right? So there's different stories in those this, sort of this long border of Central and Eastern European states uh, where essentially dictators take over um, and all the democracies fail as we move into the Second World War. And depending on the relationship with National Socialism, German-speaking communities fall into different positions within those states. Oh, just uh, a little bit of a segue, but not too much of one. Um, uh, the um, international—I don't know what he, what to call him—the Cambridge historian Brendan Sims has written about Hitler's obsession with America. Uh, book came out three or two or three or four years ago. Time has no meaning anymore in the last two years, um, and his um, his sort of rage that all the best Germans have gone to 
America and that he was being eventually fighting people like Eisenhower and Spatz, you know, and Eichelberger and Kruger, um, that these were all arrayed against him. And I, and I realized that th- this is, um, this is all of a piece, isn't it? I mean, that I, I, I guess I find now having read your book, your, uh, this much more plausible that Hitler's sort of his, uh, obsessive interest in this Ausland, uh, the Ausland Germans, and um, the way in which they represented a rejection of some of the his most deeply held beliefs. Well, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, he also looked at the United States as a model of power. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, most Americans don't like to hear that National Socialist um, ideologues actually found... Um, you know, the anti-immigration laws and the racial segregation laws that got, well, the racial segregation laws were already there, but the anti-immigration laws and the quotas that got set up after the First World War, the National Socialists thought that was great. And yeah. they were pretty impressed with the ability of the United States to deal with racial minorities and indigenous groups, um, American Indians, and uh, effective eradication um, these are all things that they thought were models. Not only they thought that, they were they they were they thought that, and the Empire State Building and aircraft are modern, and right. the, United, the United States is therefore uh, you know is modern and leading the future, and they want they want to be like that only better. Right, and they also recognized that the other advantage the United States had was um, a population that was uh, that was healthy um, Mm -hmm. and, and productive and endless, uh, natural resources. And that's part of why, you know, the whole vision of conquering to the East and the South and national socialism is a lot about gaining resources, getting access to oil, getting access to all the things that you won't have as a, Mm -hmm. um, as a central European power. Um, so you, you know, Hitler's first book, everyone knows about Mein Kampf, but, um, there it was a second book that wasn't published that had a lot of attention as well, in which he actually details all the advantages that the United States has and, and, and argues that the United States will, in the end, become the great opposition that Germany will have to face at one point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's uh, let me let me let's finish off by um, reading that something sort of backing up, but uh, thinking about German history and world history and all of our history more broadly. Um, It's a very provocative point you make at the end. You say, while I was completing my dissertation at the end of the 1990s, if my memory serves, graduate students working on 19th century German history were inevitably asked while writing their research proposals, defending their dissertations, and pitching their books. But how does this help us to understand national socialism? The subtext being, the answer to that question is what will give the study most value. I never thought that linearity made sense, and I still do not. Um, so should we think of German history without national socialism as uh, at its end, at the end of the story? And um, you obviously are saying yes, um, but how? It's almost like saying, how can the oceans avoid the gravitation of the moon? Um German history, world history has been so transformed and pulled and altered by that national socialist moment. How can we write German history without it? It's a great question. Um, You know, in 2011, the scholarly journal German History actually had a forum on just this question. German history after national socialism with people like Peggy Anderson and um, Hmm. uh, um, Ian McNeely and 
a bunch of others, and I participated in it as well. Andrew Zimmerman did too. And and you know we sort of batted around this question. This question: What would it look like? Is it is it feasible? And in the end, most of it did agree that it, it makes a lot of sense. And interestingly, Helmut Walzer Smith, who teaches at um, Vanderbilt, wrote a very very book big book on the German uh, the the nation and Germany. This came out a couple of years ago and got a lot of play. And you can sort of follow the many um, roundtables on the book until he gets to the end where he realizes that that is actually where we're at. And, and in his own book, and I mentioned this in my, my, uh, my epilogue, he also thinks about this as he's watching um, the World Cup that plays in Germany in the early part of the 21st century where young Germans are painting their faces with the national colors and going out and you know, screaming for the national team, which, by the way, is a, a pretty diverse-looking group of people. And, you know, some, some old diehard liberals were really upset about this, but, um, Helmut Walzer Smith and myself, and I I guess probably a lot of other people, maybe at first thought, "Hmm, wow, this is a little bit scary, but also recognize, wait a minute, this is also good. This is healthy. This moves that we're moving. This means that we're moving on. And so in some of the commentaries and the round tables, I think Helmut has reflected on this sort of like he, his book is sort of like the, the last statement and this older historiography and the newer historiography recognizes that there's been um you know three quarters of a century uh, almost since well yeah since the end of the second world war and a lot more history to be incorporated in which the end point is not the holocaust and the dark crater of berlin but a world in which you know germany is today the fourth largest economy in the world and pretty much a leader in welcoming refugees and pushing back against a lot of things that we who live in democracies don't like. Um, so that doesn't mean discarding national socials and the Holocaust or their importance or the place in, in German history, but it does mean that that's no longer just the only question, how did we get there? But now we have a longer term perspective in which we realize we went through there right? Mm -hmm. Chronologically. And a lot more things can be explained. So just to give you a a little example, um, I think I mentioned him earlier, Dieter Langewische, who was a professor in Tübingen for many years, is now about to turn 80. You know, he wrote a lot on what he called the Federated Nation of Germany. And one of the points he made was that, you know, some people like to think that the successful democracy that is West, that was West Germany and is now Germany, which is created on this federated nation state status was somehow a gift of the Marshall Plan in the United States. And, you know, these people who had been following an autocratic leader and a racist regime suddenly just got straightened out by our presence. And what he demonstrates is that's not true at all, because actually all of those things were already there in the Holy Roman Empire. And this federated characteristic actually informs the way most of the states ran um, even right through the National Socialist period. And so those things came re-emerging very quickly in the 1950s to establish the characteristic of the state that exists today. And so those, I think, are the kinds of things where National Socialism is not on the center because we're no longer trying to explain just that. We're just understanding the role it plays in these longer histories that now continue, right? Because the, you know, the thing about uh, one of the people I... I worked with when I first arrived at Iowa said, you know, the challenge of teaching history is it always keeps changing. Um, right. Because every decade you've got a new ending. My guest today has been Glenn Penny, former Iowan, newly Angelino, author most recently of German history unbound. 
from 1750 to the present. Glenn, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was fun. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 